has been a recording of the public broadcast system. This is only a test. So this morning's passage, we find ourselves in Genesis, in chapter 34. And I'm going to confess to you that this is a difficult passage. But I believe what Timothy said, what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy, in chapter 3, in verse 16, where it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. That the man, and that means man or woman, of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every single good work. So the word of God is, is it's there on purpose. God doesn't mince words, he doesn't waste words, and he doesn't embellish. He tells us each and everything in the Old and the New Testament in order to prepare us for things that we will experience in life. And so in Genesis chapter 34 this morning, if you'll remember from last week, um, Jacob and his family have just recently come back from the land that is outside of what we would call Canaan or Paddan Aram, specifically in Canaan, excuse me, outside of Canaan, that's going to become Israel. And so as they're returning to the land that God has promised to Abraham, he's promised it to Isaac, and then as a result, he's also promised it to Jacob. And this land is the land of promise, the land that is flowing with milk and honey. And this land is a place of blessing for those that God has chosen. Now, when you hear the word chosen, it's, it's a little bit, um, it's not inclusive. <laughs> it's exclusive. Nobody likes to be kept out of a club. And yet what God has done is he's chosen a nation through whom to bless the entire world. And that is Abraham and his descendants, the descendants of Eber. If you remember after Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the, the line of Shem comes through Abraham, and Abraham is a descendant of Shem. But then the line of Ham came through a, a man by the name of uh, Cain, or Canaan. And, and it says there, cursed be Canaan. He's a cursed lion, and so in order to be blessed in this land, you have to be a descendant of Shem. And so this morning, we're going to see these two nations clash. We're going to see the descendants of Canaan and the descendants of Israel, or Jacob, and they're going to clash. But the reason they're clashing is because Jacob, though he is now called Israel, which means governed by God, he's still called to live in the world and yet not be of the world, and he's going to take his family instead of back to the town that his descendants were in, which is Bethel, which means house of God. He's going to come into the land, but not back to the place where his people are. He's going to come to a place called Shechem. And so as we begin our reading this morning, that's the context. Verse 1 of chapter 34. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And so uh, this always makes me think of the song that my children like to sing. Someone's in the kitchen with Dinah. That's the only other place I've heard the name. So, But Dinah was mentioned in the descendants 
of Jacob. Remember, his two wives and his two servants of his wives gave him offspring, and the only ones mentioned in the narrative are the 11 sons so far. Rachel's going to have another son called Benjamin. But before that, here we are in Shechem, and one of the descendants that's mentioned, which is uncommon, is one of the daughters. And the daughter's name is Dinah, and they really don't say anything about her other than that she's a descendant of Leah. And so here in Genesis 34, Dinah takes the forefront, and it says, the daughter of Leah, whom she born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And I have there for you in my slides, um, the New Living Translation says that she went to visit some of the young women who lived in the area. And my example for that would be a couple weeks ago, right leading up to um, Easter, my family and I took a little journey down to Sam A. Baker. We put our little camper down there and we got out our bikes we build a fire and we start cooking and doing what we do. And then, of course, my daughter, because we have pitched our tent figuratively, she's on her bike and she's going to start doing the loop. She's going to wear out that bike. It's awesome because they sleep wonderful after they've been spinning in circles all day. But as they're doing that, where we have pitched our tent, there are other people. And my daughter is like my wife. She likes to talk to and meet people. And so as she's meeting the people, I find out that she's two campsites over talking to this family that have two of the most beautiful dogs I've ever seen. They have Lassie and Lassie (laughs) 2.0. And then they have two kids, a boy and a girl. So obviously, Lucy's looking for people at her age. She doesn't want to just hang out with us. She wants kids her own age, and she starts conversing with them. And when she comes back, we finally were like, you need to leave them alone. Get back over here. Uh, Before you know it, she's going to be in their camper. She's going to be like defiling the thing and messing up all their stuff. And so they were very gracious and they were wonderful people. Um, But I was like, come on back over. And as she comes back over, we find out that in their conversation, she knows all of their names, including their middle names, (laughs) including their dog's names. And the fact that just three weeks ago, they lost the... 3.0. They had three of those Lassie dogs. One was the dad, one was the mom, and then one they used to breed them. So anyway, these animals are there, and these children are there. And my point is, is that wherever we go, our children are looking to make connections. And they will connect with who is the closest, whether you want them to or not. And so here is Jacob. He's in Shechem, And his daughter, the first thing she wants to do is go find someone her age and make a connection. That's it. That's how this story begins. They're going to go hang out in the neighborhood. They're going to come in when the lights turn off. Um, And and here we have verse 2. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the country, saw Dinah, he took her and lay with her and violated her. So a a very innocent incident gone very wrong very quickly. Now, it doesn't tell us how much time this took. But what it does tell us is that uh, apparently when she went out to visit and get to know the daughters of the land, the daughters of the land, uh, they had boys. It was a mixed party. You think, well, no big deal. 
this seems to have been a big deal. They didn't know it was a big deal. They didn't know where they were living, perhaps. Maybe they hadn't considered how this would affect their children. But boy meets girl, verse 2. No big deal, right? Except, I've inserted some words here on the screen. He saw her. He took her. The word there in the New Living Translation says he seized her. This is not like he took her hand in hand and they skipped off into the sunset. This is he seized her after seeing her, beholding what her beauty, and he lay with her, and then it says that he defiled her, or New Living Translation, uh, raped her. It's a little PG-13. But this is what happened. When you take your daughter to Shechem, now, I don't think that any parent, by the way, intentionally takes their family to Shechem. No parent intentionally takes their daughters pitches their tent. Think about who else pitched their tent towards a well-known city in the Bible? Uh, A man by the name of Lot. Uh, He bought a lot. And then he pitched his tent there in the land. And look, Lot pitched his tent towards the city. He pitched his tent towards the culture. He pitched his tent towards a place that we find out later there was no one righteous there. They were only doing unrighteous acts all the time. And you would think that Lot would see that and go, oh, well, I don't want my daughters there. But instead, he moves closer as time goes on because guess what? That's where he can make money. He he moves towards the city because that's what everyone else is doing. And so we have another type here where Jacob has pitched his tent and he's facing the culture And apparently, uh, this relationship was against her will because if you look at the last verse of this chapter, it says that her brothers, who were also sons of Leah, their commentary was to Jacob, when he finally speaks up, uh, they go, well, should they treat our sister like a harlot? And so, in their opinion, this daughter of Jacob has been treated as if she were a prostitute. And so we'll stop there for now and then go to verse 3 and 4 where it says, His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah. This is Shechem. And, excuse me, his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the young woman and he spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. Now, there was one other man that I can think of in the Old Testament who said, get me that woman. And it was actually Samson. Samson fell in love with a woman of the Philistines. And then he said to his father, "Uh, get me that woman. Uh, Hey, get me woman. I attracted. I need her. You know, and, and so we get this caveman idea of men. And yet... What I would say to you is in the King James, because Jesus spoke in King James only, in the King James in Genesis, excuse me, in, in this particular passage in verse 3, what it says there is when he, it says his soul was strongly attracted, the words there are his soul claved to Dinah. His soul was knit together with Dinah. And if you remember in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when marriage is first introduced, that word cleave, not to break off, but to join together, 
is there where it says, therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. They shall be attached. Now what, we, what the desire was there is that they would commit themselves to one another and as they are spiritually attached, then they would be physically attached. They would consummate the marriage. And yet what is happening in this case is that the physical attachment happened first, but still God's intention for that physical attachment was to be within marriage only. After two people have committed themselves to one another, then they expose themselves to one another, and there's no shame in that. And so with that being the case, Jesus would later quote that exact phrase in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5, where he said, Therefore a, a man shall leave his, his mother and father and be cleaved to his wife. And in the same token, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, Paul resonates that same truth. And so here, the physical relationship happened first, but God's design for that physical relationship would be a joining together of souls. And so what's happened here is a man of the world has taken something that he did not yet commit himself to. He does it backwards. The physical happens first, and then he, now he needs her because he's been knit to her. And yet he's attracted to her. He loved her. Notice the kindness. That doesn't always happen, by the way. That's not a guarantee. He is attracted to her. He loves her. And I want to point out where it says this in this passage. I compared it to the rest of the Bible. The word love here is not like erotic or lust. The word here is actually the word used in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham was told by God, I want you to take your son, your only son, your son whom you love, and I want you to offer him up to me as a burnt offering. So this wasn't some sort of perverted love coming from the lips of this man Shechem. And yet, uh, what we know is that they were to remain apart from the people of the land. And so what a treacherous event. And if you're a father with a daughter, you know, like, if you don't have an adverse, angry reaction to what you just read, I think you're a little callous. Because the reality is, uh, something has been stolen that cannot be given back. Innocence. Not lost. Innocence taken ravaged, pillaged, ripped from the hands of this girl, ripped from the hands of this family. Uh, it infuriates me to read this because guess what? We are guilty of the same thing that Jacob has done. We are providing opportunity all the time for our daughters to have their innocence stolen and we maybe have never considered it. Uh, my personal opinion is that while I guess the world sees it totally fine to be alone with the person they're dating, I think it's setting yourself up for failure. And this is going to sound very like, you know, hey, Jedediah, hey, you Amish guy, whatever. But, but the reality is, is it's actually the Lord's way to protect us from what is very risky. And it's not worth the risk, mind you. Uh, to be alone with the opposite sex in a situation. It's like going on a diet and then moving into Krispy Kreme. <laughs> you all gonna fail. 
Every one of you. Uh, uh, me too. <laughs> I can't step away. It's like a thing of Pringles. You, you, once you pop the top, you just can't stop. And I'm embarrassed to say how many Krispy Kremes I can eat, by the way. And a little bit proud. They just melt in your mouth. But remember the circumstances that led to her being ravaged. It, it all started with an innocent visit to the daughters of the land. She wanted to meet some kids her own age. She wanted to hang out with the cool kids or even hang out with some kids. And it led to a circumstance that was not only less than stellar, it was horrible. And I don't know any parent that longs for their child to experience something like this. But I do know many parents that aren't really considering that they're setting them, their children up for failure in this area. Men included, by the way. Men, treat your sons how to treat uh, the opposite sex, not like they're something to catch, but like a sister. Uh, I would exhort young men to treat whoever they're dating as if they are still brother and sister. I know that sounds creepy, but it stops a lot of thoughts. You know, if you looked at the person you were dating as if they were a sister, I guarantee you wouldn't have the thoughts that you have when you see them as a prize or as a trophy. And I think that many times, if, if girls would hear how men talk about them in the locker room after prom night, uh, girls wouldn't even want to go to prom. They wouldn't. And so, um, anyway. So what's the problem? Uh, so this, this young man who has made an, an obvious error. He has sinned against this girl that he says he loves. And yet what we have here is, a desire for something that was never meant to be. Uh, verse 5. Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah. Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. I don't know about you, but if I was in Jacob's shoes, I, I don't think I'd be very silent. I'd be pretty upset and furious. And there would be many words, probably too many words. But here it says that he's silent until his sons came. And then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and very angry, because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by, by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give him, excuse me, give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us and give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. And so verse 11, then Shechem said to her father, Shechem said to Dinah's father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to give me. Excuse me, say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. What's interesting to me here, first thought, is that Shechem is asking for someone whom he's already taken. Now he wants permission. 
Now he, he, he's going to go and approach the dad. A bad move, by the way. But I want to start with verse 5. Jacob heard, and he held his peace until they came. I've been watching tennis this week. Now, many of you may not know, but I was not a football player. I was not a baseball player, and I sure, I, I definitely wasn't a basketball player. But that being said, I love tennis, and I didn't start playing it till my junior year. But the game of tennis could be summed up in this. You always want to be in control of the ball. You always want to receive the ball in a way that you can, once you receive it, put it where you want it so the other guy has to spend all of his time trying to keep up. Once you're spending your time keeping up, he's got the advantage. And so you always want to be in control of where it's placed. And the whole game is summed up with that. You place it where you want it, he's caught off guard and has to just kind of react. But Jacob hears this, has the moment to respond and come up with how he's going to respond to Shechem and his family, but he doesn't. And because he doesn't take the time to respond, his sons react. Responsive action is where you think first and then respond. Reaction is when you, it's like when the doctor hits your knee in that one spot and your leg goes like this, it can't help it. But when you take the time to respond before you have to respond, you have the advantage. You get to place the ball where it needs to be. But since he didn't, his sons react and they control the situation, which is good, I guess, if they've responded, but they're not. They're reacting out of their anger. And anger is not the best thing to control your life. Uh, anger is not to control the life of a believer. But here the sons are angry and they show up and they deal with Shechem according to their anger. But I do want to point out what he has said here. He says, why don't you let us make marriages between one another? Verse 9, give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. That sounds like a great deal, except their first experience, and apparently the most honorable man in the land, Shechem, uh, he takes women when they're not paying attention and he rapes them. So what seems like a good deal is we're going to make marriages with you as a people seems to be moving into an area that's, you may as well move your family to East St. Louis. You may as well move to an inner city where things are not in your control. You're always reacting. It's an ungodly place and it's known for being so. So why would you want to move your family there permanently? And yet what he says here in verse 11 is interesting to me. Shechem said to her father and, and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Now, the one thing they would probably want back would be uh, what he can't give back, right? But he says, let me find favor in your eyes. And the word favor there is the same word that it says about Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord in his day when everybody was doing wickedness. And the word favor there, by the way, is grace. Undeserved favor, undeserved treatment. Let me find favor. Let me find grace in your eyes. So moving forward, verse 13 says, 
But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, and spoke deceitfully. So apparently uh, the deceitful ways of Jacob did not stop with Jacob. They were passed on to his sons. They were schemers. They were deceitful. Because he had defiled Dinah, their sister, they spoke deceitfully with him. Verse 14, and they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. By the way, they were correct in this. But then they go on to say, for that would be a reproach to us. By the way, that would be true. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us. By the way, they're lying. That's also a reproach to them. So apparently they're not really worried about the whole reproach thing. They just want to get revenge. But he says to them, we will take your daughters to us. We will dwell with you and we will become one people. But what I'd like to point out is that circumcision, in this case, is going to be deceitfully said that we're going to use this to become one with your people. But circumcision was an outward sign. It was something that you would do as an outward sign, as a symbol to say, I'm one with God, not something to become one with the world. The the sons of Jacob are using a holy thing, to deceive, but they're also using it to lie and say, we'll become one with you and we'll make marriages with the world. But that outward sign was always meant to be an outward sign to, to symbolize the fact that they were now no longer one with the world, but to be one with God, that they were his, set apart for his use. First John says that friendship with the world is actually enmity or war with God. If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. Simply put, and so uh, circumcision was never meant to be a sign that we would become one with other people. And in Genesis chapter 17, uh, God actually spoke to Abraham there and said, I want you to circumcise your males as a sign of the covenant that I'm making with you. And, And so all of that to say, it was like they were being married to God. When you're married to some person, you're saying, I'm not at one with anyone else but them, forsaking all others. And so as we go on, I can't remember where I stopped. He says, but if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. So he's making a deal with them. But the problem with that is that God's people were meant to be separate from the Canaanites from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 24, verse 3, Abraham sent his servant, Eleazar, to get a bride for Isaac, not from Canaan or the descendants of Canaan, but from his family. In Genesis chapter 27, verse 46, Rebekah says, Oh, woe unto me if my son would to marry somebody from the land of the Canaanites. I want to send him. And she sends Jacob to her family to get a bride to bring back into the land. And then in Genesis chapter 28, um, Isaac even says very clearly, do not marry a woman from the land of Canaan. But as believers, how does this apply? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, where Paul speaks to this same idea 
Being at one with the world is at odds with God. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 14, he says, Do not be unequally joined or yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Now remember, uh, Jesus was a carpenter. And, and many of the disciples knew what a yoke was because they lived in an agrarian society. But a yoke was, an, it was a big piece of wood that they would use to attach two animals together to pull a plow or to pull a trailer. And if you were unequally yoked, say you used an oxen and a donkey, uh, no problem, they can both pull, but they can't both pull at the same rate or in the same direction. It'd be like a person with one leg shorter than the other. They're going to walk in circles. And so a oxen and a donkey put together in a yoke together, they would rub each other raw just because the difference in their gait or their stride. And so Paul picks up on this idea in 2 Corinthians 6, and he says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or the word means uh, Satan. It's a derivative of Beelzebub or the Lord of the flies. Someone who is serving the world, the flesh, or Satan himself cannot serve Jesus in the same token. Uh, Jesus even said you can't have two masters. You'll hate one and you'll love the other. And so we're to have a priority of one master. And then he goes on to say, what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? As believers, we're all blocks in the temple of God. And so to bring in somebody that serves another God is to set up a false worship system in a place that's supposed to be holy for God alone. For you are the temple of the living God, Paul writes, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them, come out from among the world and their ways. Be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall, shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So as believers, it's not just like Jacob getting his daughter defiled. As believers, we're his. So when we're defiled by mixed marriages and serving other gods, God takes it as if he's our father, and we've sinned against him. And he takes that very seriously. And so... At the same time, we have the sons. We have the reaction. And what's the biblical reaction to being sinned against by the world? By the way, the world is going to sin against you. They're not going to know the ways of God. Stop being surprised. They will not know the ways of God until they know God himself. But in the meantime, when they sin against you, not if, when. This is what Paul said in Romans 12. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Uh, now, number one, your revenge is not going to be nearly as complete as his. When he judges and he takes down our enemies, 
He, he rocks their world. And many times he judges them in a way where they can even see his grace and receive salvation. Our revenge is always going to be incomplete. Nobody gets away with anything in God's economy. Now you might say to me, what if it was your daughter? What if you were taken advantage of and your daughter was defiled in this way? It would destroy me. It would destroy me. But Jesus was allowed by his father to be ravaged. Jesus was taken advantage of. Ungodly people destroyed God's only son. And it was a part of God's plan to extend grace and forgiveness and cleansing to his enemies. So Shechem asked for grace in the eyes of the Lord, and they had an opportunity to extend grace and depart in truth and in peace. And instead, what's going to take place unfolded. Verse 18. <clears throat> and their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. He was the whole, most highly respected among his brethren. And so because of that, Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city. And he spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters." This is going to be a hard sell, by the way. These are fully mature men. And he's going to ask them, I want you to be circumcised as part of a business deal. Uh, by the way, very hard sell. If you don't understand that, talk to your husbands. But he says, verse 22, Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. To sweeten the pot, think about it this way, guys. Verse 23, will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and Shechem, his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. So they were deceitful as well. They saw their, an opportunity to gain financially. They were preparing for wealth. But in the meantime, Dinah's brothers were preparing for war. It came to pass on the third day, verse 25, when they were in pain, that two of the sons of Jacob, notice who it is, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers from Leah, they take this very personally, they each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son with the edge of the sword, and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. So they took their pound of flesh, and it was way more than foreskins. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain, and they plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys, 
what was in the city and what was in the field and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, they took as captives. So they treated them like they had been treated. And they plundered even all that was in the houses. Now, later on in Israel's history, they will be told to utterly wipe out the, 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 the people of the land of Canaan. And many people try to explain that away in their theology. They cannot see how a God of love would come in and utterly destroy and commit what seems to be like genocide in a land. But here's the deal. At this point, they were not commanded to wipe these families out. This was totally an act of their will, not God's. They had an opportunity to extend grace. Later on, when Abraham's people are taken Jacob and all of his sons and their descendants. Over 70 people are taken back to Egypt and they're saved by Joseph. That's most of the the, the last part of Genesis and we'll get there. They are kept there for 400 years by the plan of God to allow the iniquity of the people of the land of Canaan to come to full maturity. He gives them 400 years to repent of their idol worship. He gives them 400 years to repent and see the testimony of Jacob and his faithfulness to them. And after 400 years, he sends the people of Jacob back to the land of Canaan. After having allowed them to be slaves for 400 years, God is long-suffering. And then when he sends them into the land, he says, utterly destroy them. Among their sins are not just rape, but eventually they take their children and they offer them up to Molech on an idol that is brazenly hot. They sacrifice their infants to gods of Satan. And so he sends them in to judge unrighteousness. But at this point, that was not yet what they were called to do. But nonetheless, God does, these people do this outside of the will of God. On the third day, when they were in pain, Simeon and Levi, they killed the males. They recovered Dinah. I want to point that out, by the way. He was asking for Dinah in marriage, and yet it seems that when they go in there and they kill all these people and they take the plunder, they take Dinah from captivity. So it wasn't the most romantic thing. Uh, she was kept against her own will. And yet, it made me think of Joshua chapter 5, because in Joshua 5, when they do come back into the land and God's brought them into the land to take it as their own. The generation that died in the wilderness before they come into the land, they were were circumcised. But when they come to the land, the next generation was not circumcised. They were not uh, brought into that covenant. And so before they march around the, the walls of Jericho famously, God says, I want you to be set apart once again. I want you to to recognize that you're my people. And he says, Joshua, make flint knives. Of course, the men are like, oh gosh. And then he, he says, be circumcised this generation. Be set apart. You're going into the land for my purposes, not your own. And they are all circumcised in the presence of their enemies, that none of their enemies had been conquered. They've come across the Jordan, which was kind of their their fence and their safety away from the people who are now going to be their enemies. And they're circumcised and they're sitting there in the land, by the way, like the Shechemites, in pain, all of their warriors incapacitated, vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. And yet God 
made the people of the land because of their holiness. He made them to be feared among the nations of Canaan, and they were never attacked. God protected them when they were obedient. And so my question for you this morning is, was it God's desire that they intermarry with Canaanites? I think we figured out biblically the answer to that is no. Was it God's plan to have Dinah ravaged in Shechem? And I would say to you, no. It was not God's plan. It was Jacob's fault. He brought, them, he brought his own family to an unsafe place. Take that as a deep warning to you and your household. Are you taking your families? Are you pitching your tent towards places that are unsafe for your children and for you and your wife? There are consequences for that. Was it God's plan to use circumcision to judge the nations? No. It was was his plan to set apart the nations. Was it God's plan to keep his people separate from other nations and to show his righteous standard among the other nations? And I would say to you, yes. Oh, I meant to throw that in there. Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. The sons brought vent to their rage, but the wise will bring calm in the end, and the Lord will. And so, Jacob, verse 30, says this, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land. He's speaking to his sons. Among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me, and they will kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. Jacob's not concerned about his daughter, seemingly. He finally speaks up, and he's only worried about me, myself, and I. He says, sons, because of the way you handled this situation, the other nations around us are going to hear about how we dealt with Shechem, and we're going to be a stench in their nostrils. You brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. But again, how did they get there? Who put them in the circumstance? Jacob. He made his own self a stench to the people of the land. So as he finally responds, he says, Sons, your behavior is the reason that I am obnoxious to the Canaanites. Your behavior is its going to make us a target for their revenge. Your behavior is going to get us killed. But he, he doesn't say us. He says it's going to get me killed. He's only worried about himself. He says, your behavior is the reason my household is doomed in this land. Life is situational. Why were they in Shechem in the first place? Because Jacob brought them there. But then verse 31, they respond very legitimately. Should they treat our sister like a harlot? And the answer is, no, they shouldn't. But whether or not his sons had behaved the way that they did, Jacob and his people were going to become obnoxious. They're going to be obnoxious. Believers, we are going to be obnoxious to the world because we are, in their words, holding up progress from us being set free to be whoever we are meant to be, whoever we're designed to be. We're so supposed to be set free to to express ourselves and, and, and enjoy life as it's supposed to be. And yet, if we follow what God's taught us in his word, we're going to be different. We're not going to be the same. 
and that's good. We're going to be light and salt in the world. We're going to be what restrains wickedness. And so we're going to become a stench to the world just by simply being obedient to the Lord. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote about this in chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 Paul writes, thanks be to God who always leads us. He's talking to believers. He's talking to Christians. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us, he diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Think about that. You know, Jacob just said, we're going to be a stench in the nostrils of our neighbors. But Paul writes here that through us, Christ diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. We smell like Jesus. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. Among those who have received the grace of God, who have repented of their sin, who are walking in the ways everlasting, who are set free to worship him in spirit and in truth, we are the aroma of Christ. And to us who are saved by Christ... That aroma is amazing. It's the best scent in the entire world. But to the world who is perishing, to the world who will be judged because they love unrighteousness rather than godliness, we smell like a dunghill. We smell terrible because our righteousness, because it's in Christ and our ways have changed so much, all they can see is that we are We're holding them back from experiencing all the pleasures and all the sin that their heart so deeply desires. We're holding back progress and inclusivity. And and by God's grace, we still are. But what I want to point out is that if your life is not a stench to the world that lives around you, then I would suggest more than likely your life is has not truly been changed by Christ. And if your life doesn't smell good to other believers, same thing. But if your life causes people to turn up their nostrils that don't know Jesus, then I would submit to you that you are a fragrance that's pleasing to the Lord. Your life is incense offered up. And yet what I want to point out too is that though Jacob's sons did the right thing, in saying, no, we won't marry your culture. And though they did it the wrong way, God judged unrighteousness through them, and he set up a righteous standard for Jacob. And that's a good thing, even though they did it the wrong way. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And yet, I would receive this text today as a warning to us practically What are we setting our faces towards? What are we condoning in our lives that the next generation will take to the next level? The things that my parents condoned, the things that I condone in the lives of my children, if they're even slightly off course, you take a compass and you start to go in a straight line. If you're slightly off course at the beginning, you're way off at the end. We need to set the tone. We need to set the standard. We need to set our face towards the temple, not the world. And so, Father, 
Thank you for this message. And thank you for, the, for Jacob, who was not perfect, and yet you will perfect him, and you'll perfect your will in his life. Maybe there's some of, some of us here today who are very convicted by this. I know I am. I've, I've set my face towards the things of the world, and I'm unbeknownst to myself putting my children and their children and their children's children, I'm setting the tone incorrectly and I'm leading them uh, towards sin and I don't even know it. So Father, as is so aptly said, would you take the wheel? Would you aim us? Would you set our hearts on pilgrimage towards your holiness and your temple? Set our faces towards heaven, even if it makes us look weird in the meantime. Help us to put off the ways of the world, even to, to scoff at the ideas that, that men produce and they, they promote. Lord, help us, as for me and my house, let us serve the, the Lord in holiness. We ask for you to give us the power to do that because it's not easy and it's not popular, but it's good. And so, Father, thank you for being so good. In Jesus' name, amen.